welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all their support with these podcasts. Back joining me for another instalment is Mark Worrell. Mark is a paediatric intensivist at the Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow. He's a consultant in paediatric critical care transport at Scottstar, and he's one of our responder support clinicians for Basic Scotland. He's here tonight to chat through what sounds like a tiny topic, but I suspect might have legs in terms of respiratory emergencies. Mark, thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me back and for this uh, small stroke, enormous topic. (laughs) So I think we should set some ground rules. Purpose of today is to kind of cover off the common paediatric respiratory emergencies that responders might get called to. I'm going to stop you from getting too excited and talking about paediatric respiratory critical care because that's <laughs> that's going to be well outside my wheelhouse and I'll stop being able to spell things. But I think, yeah, it'd be really good to cover off the, the stuff that folk are likely to see on the road. So absolutely, we're not going to be talking about ventilators, we're not going to talk about ventilator strategies, and we're not going to talk about paediatric ET tubes. This is far removed from where we're going to go with this conversation. Awesome. My thought for today was if we start at sort of the outside world and work our way down into the lung, that gives us a little bit of a vague structure. So if we kick off with paediatric choking, tell me a little bit about, first of all, what does a choking child look like? Awful. (laughs) Panicked. (laughs) Panicked parents, panicked caregivers. They might be drooling. So it may be that they've got something that's impacted there and it's it's not having problems with their breathing. So they may well be drooling. So it's to think about where is the follower body. And we're going here is it's in the airway. It's causing partial or complete airway obstruction. That's where we're going with this conversation. But you could have a foreign body that's actually caused irritation to the airway as a differential. So peanuts have some have oil on them. So you could get some airway edema from that. Or you could get something that's partially stuck elsewhere, maybe even in the esophagus. But where we're going to go with this conversation, I presume, Dave, is we've got a suspected foreign body in the airway yes yeah absolutely okay so they're gonna look awful and it all depends on the age of the child where you're going to go what you're going to do but the the caregivers are going to be anxious and they may well be doing basic life support interventions um, and they may have been told what to do for a child that's got a suspected foreign body causing airway obstruction so just to recap, from my point of view, dealing with adult choking, it's pretty straightforward. You ask them if they can yeah. get off. If they can, fantastic. You get them to crack on. If you can't, then you're going to sort of step into interventions. I'm guessing with kids, particularly yeah. younger kids, that's not so much of an option. Walk ourselves through the Resource Council's algorithm for this from 2021. The first thing, do you suspect a foreign body causing airway obstruction? And they need to shout for help. Now, if we're going as a the first responder, that helps for obviously being activated. And if you're there first, then you need to call for help. Either bystanders or someone's going to call 999. But the cough you're relating to there is the cough effective because the child may be so young, it might be an infant that's not able to actually talk to you, but you'd be able to know is that cough effective? Is it actually having a mechanism to try and move that foreign body out of the way? And if it does, encourage them. But it may be sitting them up. If it's a little toddler, sitting them up on your knee or on the top of the table and lean them forward so it helps them to encourage the cough. So if they've got an effective cough, help them and encourage them to do what they're doing. Because the last thing you want to do is go down the other route and do the back blows, which then distracts them, isn't it? So 
effective cough as an adult, encourage them. Your own cough is going to be better if it's working. Absolutely. So in the patient group who aren't coughing effectively, what are the next steps when dealing with children? Right, so you need the emergency services. If they're not on the way at that point, you need to do that. And they need to work out, is this child conscious or not conscious? And if they're not conscious, then you need to go down your paediatric basic life support and then adding the advanced life support into that. So if they're unconscious, it's open the airway, give five rescue breaths, and then you're going to start your standard basic life support. With the thinking is, if it's partially obstructed, you're going to get some air through there when you're doing your rescue breaths. And when you're doing your 15 to 2 chest compressions to ventilations, the chest compressions may well move, dislodge that, that foreign body. So that's if they're unconscious. If they're conscious and they've not got an effective cough, then this is where it gets a little bit different because of the size of the child. You're still going to do your five back blows the same as adults, okay? But the difference is if they're less than the one-year-old, an infant, you're going to do chest thrusts. If they're a child, they're bigger, you're going to do the abdominal thrusts the same as the adults. So the subtle difference is if they're an infant less than one, you're going to do chest thrusts. Now, the chest thrusts are just slightly different, and usually it's going to be two fingers. It's going to be the center of the, of the sternum, and it's going to be pressing down with deliberate action five times and letting the chest recoil. So that's slightly different to adults. And each time you're going to see if the obstruction has been relieved, and hopefully they'll move it. And I guess by the time you're in CPR mode, we're not that fussed if the obstruction goes down into the airway or up into the oropharynx as long as it shifts from that sort of critical narrowing roundabout the epiglottis absolutely yeah what you want is air to go in and out and blood to go round and round that if they're unconscious and that's what you need we can come and fish out the foreign body at that point no matter where it is but what we need is we need a circulation and breathing fantastic Okay. Well, since we're kind of in the lower part of the oropharynx, the next horror show is epiglottitis. That kind of went out of fashion for a while, but I gather it's it's on the return. So thankfully, unless you're about to jinx me, I have not seen it for quite a while. The worry some people have had, and hopefully it's not been borne out, it doesn't seem to be borne out, is when we were at the peak of the pandemic, some children were not getting vaccinated. Hemophilus influenza is one of the vaccinations that you normally get in your childhood vaccinations, and that's one of the uh, common pathogens for epiglottitis. So we were worried that we were going to have an increase in epiglottitis, and it hasn't been seen. But as you say, it's scary. So talk me through the sort of presentation with, with epiglottitis. What age of children and how do they, how do they come across? So acute epiglottitis is, is essentially inflammation of the epiglottis, um, and it affects the soft tissues around there. The age group commonly is the less than twos, but the disease itself, as we've already said, has been reduced massively because of the immunization for hemophilus influenza B. The, the presentation is usually a child that's drooling, they're very anxious, they want to sit forward all the time, They've often got a strider, but it's often high-pitched, and, it, and it's really abnormal and atypical. It's different to croup. And they may well have had a preceding severe sore throat and fever. But particularly worrying is they find it very difficult to swallow as well. 
and the drooling. If you see a child that's drooling with this, this strider, it's time to worry that this may be epiglottitis. If it continues, they can actually get septic from it as well uh, because it's a bacterial infection that's caused this. So think croup, but much worse. And in terms of speed of onset, certainly the croup I've seen has been pretty rapid from essentially well kids to having this sort of pretty spectacular upper respiratory symptoms. I'm right in saying epiglottitis tends to have a little bit more of an unwell kid during the course of the day that's getting kind of progressively worse. Yeah, absolutely. So often it can be, it looks like they've got a normal viral infection, grumbling with a temperature, miserable and well, maybe complaining of a sore throat. But then, as you say, it actually gets worse. Okay. And if we've got a suspicion that we've got a kid with epiglottitis, aside from having a a mild internal panic, uh, what are we going to do about it? You need everyone to keep calm. You need to use the... uh, caregivers the parents to full advantage and you want to use things that's going to make them as at least distressed as possible even giving oxygen putting it onto their face it may well make this strider worse the swelling is substantial so to put it into context when you anesthetize these patients and intubate them it's very difficult to see where the vocal cords are and sometimes you need to press on the stomach and the, the lower chest area so you can see a bubble of air passing up the trachea and you can see, then see where the vocal cords are. So that's the extent of occlusion you can get and it's going to continue until we give some antibiotics. But they're going to take time to work. So you need to move this child to hospital uh, where they have the capability of anaesthetizing them in an anaesthetic room or theatre and for them to be intubated. But you need to do that in a manner that's going to be least disruptive for them and to make them least upset. You're certainly not going to attempt to put IV access in a patient like this unless they become peri-arrest, okay, and you're hopefully not going to get to that stage. You need to move them sitting up using non-threatening oxygen. You may well try a nebulizer of adrenaline. I'm sure we're going to get to, to nebs of adrenaline soon when we get to group. But it's trying to do things in a simple and non-threatening manner. But ultimately, the treatment is they need to go to hospital. They need to be potentially anesthetized, intubated, ventilated, cannula put in, and some antibiotics. And that's the usual course. And they're often going to come to a pediatric intensive care unit, and they're going to be sedated and ventilated for a few days until that swelling goes down. So that's the trajectory that you may well be looking at if you get epiglottitis. So the logic behind keeping the child as calm as you can and avoiding anything that's, that's going to make them agitated is it's just because it's going to make them work harder and, and potentially increase the, the swelling around the epiglottis. Is that accurate? You want to keep them as calm, as relaxed as possible. The obstruction's going to worsen if they get upset, essentially. And yes, you're going to potentially make them more tired as well. But ultimately, you're going to cause the obstruction to worsen if they get upset and start crying and screaming. And if you have the time to be able to get one on and doesn't upset them, the saturation pope, you'll notice when they get upset, the saturations will fall. Okay, so this is definitely one to have on the cool calm exterior and treat with high flow diesel yes diesel the answer here it's a delicate of trying to get there as quickly as possible but not you know causing more distress to the patient the parents will be great at giving oxygen plus or minus nebs by wafting it around i think that's probably the term you want to, to use so whilst we're on this kind of 
part of the respiratory tract croup. I think most folk, and particularly GPs, will have seen plenty of croup, but just remind me as to how it presents. Okay, so it's a viral infection of the larynx and trachea. It's inflammatory again, and it can cause variable obstruction to the airway. Um, it's usually young children again. It's usually parainfluenza virus that causes it. And as you said before, it can be reasonably sudden onset. The stridor can gradually get worse. It is not as problematic as we've just said about apoglottitis. And it's usually children six months to three years of age. We have had a, an increase in, in some of the waves of the COVID with croup, but it also usually comes around in peaks in spring and autumn. Certainly, from my experience, these jobs always seem to come in at sort of midnight, two in the morning. Um, I don't know if there's any evidence for it it being worse overnight, but that seems to be the time at which my phone goes off for kids in extremis. I think that's just you, Dave, potentially. Um, Again, we've got sort of inflammation around the upper airways. Any particular characteristics of croup that sort of help to differentiate it? Okay, so we talked about epiglottitis. So you're not going to have this drooling. It's usually going to go on one to two days. It's, it's going to come on. They may have had some prodrome, so a mild fever on a really nose beforehand. And then they may have complained of a sore throat. And they can have a, a barking cough, which is, is typical of this disease. Yeah. The differential is wide, as with everything in children, because it's, you can't ask them direct questions. And so it's a bit more challenging. But epiglottitis, tracheitis, so it's... Uh, We'll get a bit further down here. The foreign bodies we've talked about. Anaphylaxis, as we've talked about before in another podcast. And if you think of the teenagers, is glandular fever. So they're the type of things that might be caused a differential. But it's usually younger children. They've had some prodrome, so some mild viral type symptoms. And then they've got this cough that started and this strider that, that we've talked about. And certainly the, the ones that I've been to recently you sort of walk in and hear the stridor and then the caregiver plays you a recording of this funny noise that they were making, um, which is beautifully diagnostic because you, you've then got a nice clear history of exactly what the problem is. Absolutely. But that's probably important because hopefully you're going to treat them effectively and that will all be gone by the time they get to secondary care. Um, so that's quite good evidence that it was group, I suppose. That's something I've learned tonight. So treatments, this is one of my favourite things to treat because it's like magic. But talk me through what we need to do for croup. Okay, so similarities before, you want to keep the situation calm, non-threading manner, wafting the oxygen or the nebs we're going to get to with the patient using the caregiver. So the, the treatment is going to be a combination of adrenaline nebulizers driven by oxygen and oral dexamethasone. There has been other ways of giving dexamethasone, but the mainstay is oral dexamethasone is what we need to give to the patient. Some talk about doing a croup score to work out if they're mild, moderate, severe, but I presume we're going to be talking about the severe spectrum here, aren't we, of the croup? Yeah, I suspect by the time they've got a basic responder out of bed, probably going to be hitting those severe score markers, and I must admit, either way, they're going to be going to hospital from my point of view. (laughs) The mainstay of management is going to be nebulized adrenaline, which is going to be five mils in one of a thousand. So that's the adrenaline you would normally use for IM for anaphylaxis. So it's going to be five mils of one in a thousand put into a nebulizer and driven by oxygen and then you're going to give some oral dexamethasone now you can give it iv but i'm going to suggest if you're pre-hospital using sharp needles is going to make the child worse and you've not got much backup options if that causes significant problems so i think the mainstay is going to be nebulized adrenaline 
and oral dexamethasone. Yeah, all as always, look the dose up. Fantastic. And that ties in nicely with the kit that's in the Sandpiper Drugs bags and for the Scottish Ambulance Service folk in their treatment packs. Absolutely. Okay. So we've covered choking, epiglottitis, and croup. I guess whilst we're on the sort of seasonal respiratory things, we should probably look at bronchiolitis. Oh, great. Yeah, bronchiolitis. So winter, you usually get bronchiolitis. It's usually due to respiratory syncytial virus, but other virus can cause it. Now, we're recording this now, the fourth wave of the pandemic. And I think we thought we were going to get a huge surge of bronchiolitis because children had not been exposed to it a year ago. We haven't had that. But it's usually a respiratory disease of children who are less than one. There's some high-risk groups that can get bronchiolitis. So they're the ones you want to be looking at for the history day is if they've got any high-risk factors that are going to cause more concern for you and uh, you may need to have escalation of care earlier. So I'm thinking about the children are born really premature. They've had to have special care or neonatal intensive care. Children have got heart problems. Children have got immune problems. So, and children that are smaller than they should be because they've got other health problems. That set of patients are going to have alarm bells already, even if you think they've got mild or moderate respiratory decompensation. Luckily, though, they get immunization every month in the peak of the winter, and that's what's happened this month as well. So every month they get an intramuscular injection of a vaccine that works against RSV. Fantastic. How do the bronchiolitic kids present? What sort of the cardinal features that we're looking for when we're, when we're arriving? So we've got, I guess, a, a one-year-old or thereabouts. And aside from respiratory distress, what other things are the, what other features are we looking for? So helpful or unhelpfully, they've usually got a prodrome of being a bit miserable, having a bit of a temperature. You can see a common theme here, uh, <laughs> I hope, of just not being right for a few days. And then they develop increased work of breathing and irregular breathing. Now, it's important to add, though, if they're less than six weeks old, they can present with apneas, which we can talk about in a second if you want. But the presentation can just be apneas, which obviously is much more significant. And they can have some wheeze as well. Often, if it's other children in the family, you'll have a four-year-old, five-year-old, say, a bigger child that's come back from school or nursery, it's been a bit snotty, and it's been a bit virally, and then the smaller baby has then got it. But because they're smaller and their airways are smaller, they get blocked up of all the fixed secretions. It can be worse. So sometimes there's hints in the history to suggest what well, this may well be bronchiolitis. So that kind of paints a picture of the kid that we're looking at. Treatment options, for if we suspect it's bronchiolitis? So most bronchiolitis stay at home. Okay, There's tens of thousands of babies and infants who get bronchiolitis each year. So uh, you know, a lot of them actually could stay at home as long as their saturations are fine and they're feeding fine. And that's a very common presentation for general practitioners. A small amount of them, they need to be admitted to hospital. For the, for the main reasons are they need a little bit of oxygen because the saturations are low. Or they've not been feeding because they're working so hard they're unable to feed. So those are the two criteria usually that they need to go to hospital. Or you you feel they need to be looked over okay so that how to separate the two groups but if you've got those risk factors are talking about they are definitely going to hospital for the management you want to give them some nasal cannula oxygen you may need to help unblock some of the fixed secretions that, that they've got going 
So thinking about your physiology of, of really smaller people, they mostly breathe for the noses, okay, not the mouths, and that's because of how so they can feed and breathe at the same time for the nose. So it's called obligate nasal breathers. The issue with is all the airways from the passages from the nasal pharynx down to the bronchioles get flamed with the virus uh, and the cells fall off and it gets really thick secretions. You may need to suction the nose so you can get some actually space for the oxygen to go down. So nasal suctioning you might need to do and give some nasal cannula oxygen. So they're the two things that you're probably going to have to do if you need to do an intervention before you take to the hospital. Fantastic. Okay. Well, you, you touched on apneas there. It's probably worth just covering that off before we sort of move on down yeah. down the respiratory tree. So just for clarity, do we have a, a definition of apneas or, or what sort of things are we looking at? Well, the usual thing what you're going to get called for is there'll be a 999 call for a respiratory arrest. That's probably what the call is going to be. Or it's a, I'm not sure if it's a respiratory arrest or cardiorespiratory arrest. They're going to start in CPR. That's usually how this timeline works and then the paramedics ambulance crew basically just one that gets there and then they have a child who is then is breathing and screaming and then you assess them and then you get them into the ambulance you pre-alert and on the way to hospital they will have another one or two apneas and then i think we need to work out what's wrong with them and it's not usually apparent they've got a respiratory problem but they're having apneas so the, the, with lots of things in children that diagnosis is quite wide what could be going on but bronchiolitis is part of that other causes of apneas such as infection or problems going in their brain that could be causing apneas but they can present with apneas so and it's usually a 999 call for the child to stop breathing and in a similar way to bronchiolitis and saying that premature kids small kids kids with immune problems are, are more likely to have this as a present so less than six weeks and definitely smaller children and the ex-premature children, are, yes, they are more likely to present like this. Okay, we're going to pause things there and we'll be back next week to hear Mark chat a little bit more about some paediatric respiratory conditions, starting off with the tiny topic of wheeze. So we'll see you next week for some more paediatric emergency care. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.